appreciate Nick braving through those Christmas announcements. Christmas really is a great time to give and to love and to serve. I just want to add one more thing is that we will on Christmas Eve take our traditional Christmas Eve donation. Uh, it's been an important part of our life together. It's not a part of our operating budget. And 100% will go to the causes that we choose. This year, the Christmas Eve donation will go to one to continue to sustain the apartment that we rent at Whispering Oaks. We partner with two other churches in the renting of that apartment. And uh, the first cause for Christmas Eve will go to sustain that ministry apartment. And then secondly, Bob and Angie Vaultman and Louise and I are heading back to East Asia on December the 27th. We'll be there for a couple of weeks, and the other part of that donation on Christmas Eve will help underwrite our trip. You will receive a letter. You might be wondering why we're going back so quickly. Uh, this will be actually, as of today's plan, our only trip to East Asia this year, at least for m- myself. Uh, others may go. But um, uh, you may wonder why we're going so quickly, and we will send a letter out this week explaining, again, what the purpose of that mission is and uh, what we hope to accomplish during that time. You might also think about praying for Bob and Angie. Uh, They'll be on that trip, but they're right now in Managua. And uh, they completed uh, the distribution of all of the Christmas shoeboxes that we do. And again, thank you for your involvement there. And they will be flying back uh, here to the States with Nathan and Lydia tomorrow. So keep praying for them. And uh, Bob and Angie, my goodness, this is what retirement looks like. Traveling, traveling the world on mission. God bless them for that. Well, um, Go Tell It on the Mountain is a Christmas carol enjoyed by millions around the world. Last week, we learned the origins and the message of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And in contrast to its grand and sweeping theology, Go Tell It on the Mountain is remarkably moving in its simplicity. Written in the middle of the 19th century by an unknown African-American slave who was familiar with suffering, the meaning of this carol can be connected to two scriptures, one from the new and one from the old. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read the Christmas passage this morning from Luke's gospel and tell the story of this carol. And secondly, I'd like to read the Old Testament passage, which is inspirational and instructive. So, will you stand as I'm going to read here in Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. Very famous Christmas story. Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was an angel with a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Father, impress in our imaginations the glory of what the shepherds saw that night. And move us here 2,000 years later to take that same message everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So the book, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas, tells the history of Go Tell It on the Mountain. And peering behind the curtain of this carol affords us the opportunity to appreciate the contribution of African-American slaves to Christian music, namely Negro spirituals. Author Ace Collins makes this comment about the Negro spiritual. He wrote, As a largely uneducated people longing for freedom, suffering incredible cruelty and humiliation, many still somehow manage to encounter the powerful touch of the Holy Spirit in ways that manifested themselves in songs of unparalleled majesty and beauty. So, not long after the Civil War, a black scholar and musician by the name of John Wesley Work felt that blacks in the South would spiritually benefit from learning their ancestors, what the songs that their ancestors wrote and sang during the days of slavery. Now, Work was a choir director living in Nashville, Tennessee. And his efforts, which were taken up vigorously by his family, his own family, in the next generation, helped preserve the hundreds of Negro spirituals that we know today. Now, Work's in Nashville, in Work's choir, were members of the Fisk Jubilee Singers from Fisk College. This was a nearby black college. And the Fisk Jubilee Singers helped introduce the world to Negro spirituals. They toured the world, appearing in England before Queen Victoria, and at the White House with President Chester Arthur in attendance. Well, that's a little bit about the spirituals, but who exactly unearthed Go Tell It on the Mountain? Well, who unearthed it is unknown. But it was clearly the sons of John Wesley Work that popularized the song. Their names were John Wesley II and Frederick. They were the first to identify the song's potential. Now, their first brilliant move was to leave the lyrics intact. They recognized their power to move the heart. But they did rearrange the music into an anthem-like structure that was easily sung by choirs. Now, most Negro spirituals focused on the suffering and pain of this life while anticipating the future uh, happiness 
hope of a future happiness in heaven. The spirituals, as you know, many of you learned them, the spirituals have a mournful quality that was born from that suffering. But go tell it on the mountains, a little more unique. It was a song bubbling up from the inspiration of a slave's Christmas. An inspiration drawing from the dignity bestowed by God on lowly shepherds. Again, here's what Ace Collins wrote. He said, with no hope of earthly freedom, this unknown slave imagined the emotions of the shepherds as a powerful light from heaven shone down on them. Frightened by a power they could not begin to understand, they were greeted by angelic voices trumpeting the birth of a Savior. Leaving their flock, not fully understanding why they were, why they were going, these confused men went to see a baby in the most humble of surroundings. And in that place, these shepherds found understanding, knowledge, and love. As these songs were sung, he writes, As crowds listened to the choir from Fisk performed a song, many were brought to tears, others to their knees. The grandson of John Wesley Work, this would be John Wesley Work III, took pleasure in recalling his early days as a child on the campus of Fisk University, where his father, John Wesley II, was a professor. Very early, this was their tradition, very early on Christmas morning, long before sunrise, it was the custom for students to gather and walk together from building to building, singing, go tell it on the mountain. What you see in your bulletin there, in the the back of your bulletin, are the first known lyrics, the first printed lyrics of Go Tell It on the Mountain. This was in a 1909 book called Religious Folk Songs of the Negro as Sung on the Plantations. Well, of course, the popularity of the last 50, 60 years, the popularity of this song has continued to grow with its infectious melody. The faith of this unknown slave has touched millions around the world. It has gone over hills and everywhere. This is the story behind the carol. And as to its implications for us, as to the ways it might inspire and impact us today, now I would like to go to the scripture from the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter 62. And I believe there to be some evidence that this scripture may have been a part of the song's inspiration. Now, of course, this cannot be proven. But in my imagination, in my vivid imagination, I would like to picture a pastor, an African-American pastor, preaching this text over the Christmas season. And a member of the church putting the lyrics together while... He or she listened. Well, in the age to come, we'll find out the rest of that story. But let me read now. It's page 621 if you want to follow along in your Bible, your, your Bible there in front of you. Let me read the first seven verses of Isaiah 62, and we'll see the connection. Verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. 
You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman. So shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, Jerusalem, I have set a watchman. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest. Give him no rest. Until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So if you were following along and if you were looking at the lyrics, did you see the connection? The connection is from verse 6. I have set a watchman. And in the song, he made me a watchman. Watchmen in ancient days were uh, resided or spent their time on a city wall, particularly in the evening, always watching ever vigilant, the watchman would anticipate either good news from a messenger, say sent from a battle, or they might warn of an approaching enemy. The watchman here in Isaiah 62, however, is a prophetic watchman or a spiritual watchman. For they are watching and they are looking over the horizon, so to speak, for the fulfillment of God's promises. And when the promise comes into view, the prophetic watchmen cannot remain silent. They must tell it on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere. So, here's what I want to do. I want to just walk through these verses and ask five questions to help us understand and then to apply them. Okay? Look at verse 1, if you would. Verse 1 says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep quiet. So the first of our five questions is, who is speaking? Who is the I referring to? Now, factoring in the previous chapter, we can make a compelling argument that the I, the voice, is none other than that of the coming Messiah. Look back at chapter 61, if you would. Just a chapter before. To give us a little context here. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. If that seems familiar to you. It's because Jesus spoke those words. Jesus repeated those words at the beginning of his public ministry. And remarkably Jesus made the claim 700 years after Isaiah wrote it that those words were being fulfilled by me in your presence. So in chapter 62, it could be Jesus speaking or it could be the prophet Isaiah himself. Either way, the distinction truly is not necessary since the true prophet speaks the word of God. And Isaiah was a prophet. Now, a part 
of the ministry of a prophet is seeing and predicting the future. In these verses, what does Isaiah see about the future? Well, I think he sees two things. First, he sees the terrible destruction of Jerusalem. Something that has not yet happened during the time of his writing, but will in a few short years when, when Israel is attacked by Babylon and forced into exile. Verse 4 describes this. It says, You shall no more be termed or named forsaken. And a little bit later, Your land shall no more be termed or named desolate. After Babylon's shock and awe and terror, Israel was a wasteland. And by all evidence, it appeared that God had forsaken them. Again, termed means what you are called by. Uh, Other versions say your name. By saying these conditions represented names, he suggests, the author suggests, their very identity had been ripped from them. This is more than losing your home. It's losing your history, your purpose, your community, your way of life. You know, by example, a prisoner loses their freedom and they lose their name, so to speak. Number so-and-so over the loudspeaker report here. Or when called to uh, report information, uh, where's number so-and-so? Not using a name. In, in Les Miserables, you might remember the conflict between Javert, the policeman, and Jean Valjean, the former prisoner and now fugitive. In the song from the musical that captures that scene, Javert does not dignify him by calling him his name, Jean Valjean. He simply refers to him as 246 So Isaiah sees the destruction of Jerusalem, but he sees something else, doesn't he? He also sees Israel's restoration. And he predicts their return to the land in the first three verses with sweeping uh, imagery and grand language. You will be a crown of beauty. Nations will see your righteousness. Your righteousness will go forth as brightness, your salvation as a burning torch. He says in so many words, you will be God's exhibit to an admiring world. This is remarkable because when other nations in the ancient world were swallowed up by a more powerful invader, um, they simply fell into the dustbin of history as a people group more more often than not, never to reemerge again as a specific people group. They were assimilated by the aggressors and just became part of that new culture. But Isaiah says something here very profound and exceptional in ancient history, saying you will return to your land and you will be given a new name. Your identity, purpose, history, way of worship, culture will be restored. Now, this prophecy, this prediction of the future, had an immediate fulfillment. After 70 years 
a remnant of Israel returned to the land and with them their way of worship and their their culture. The neighboring nations did witness the exiles come home and rebuild their temple and their city walls and Israel again functioned as a nation led by God. God's word was fulfilled in this way. But there is also here in the future a more glorious fulfillment of this prediction. And here now believers differ a little bit in how they view the future because we see the future so dimly. Some believe that the Messiah will return and rule literally and physically on the earth in Jerusalem and the entire world will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Others believe that this passage does not point to the physical restoration of Jerusalem, but rather this prophecy has already been fulfilled spiritually through the active, ongoing presence of the church of Christ in the world. They see the church as a new Israel, the new people of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles. The crown of jewels in God's hand, they suggest, is the church today. So that leads us now to our third question. We've tried to answer, what does Isaiah see? He saw both the destruction and the restoration of Jerusalem. Now here's the third question. The third question is, what is the intersection of my mom's name and one of my favorite Bible verses? Okay, I'm serious. What is the intersection of my mom's name and one of my favorite Bible verses? Look at verse 4. God says, you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. Remember before we said that the word forsaken carried with it the thrust of being divorced. The thrust of the meaning married here is no longer forsaken, no longer divorced. The word for married here is the word beulah. That is my mom's name. She's 91. And I've noticed that that name has not yet made a recovery like others from her generation. (laughs) But God bless her. That is, yep, that is her name. When you live out your purpose, God is saying, you are my primary, you people of God. You are my primary source of joy and delight. Not the created world. Not the vast universe. Not the rugged mountain peaks that touch the heavens. Not the ocean deeps and their mysteries. No, you are my joy. I get unbounding pleasure in you. I love your company. I love to hear your voice. You are my chosen. You are clothed in my righteousness. You will reign with me. That's their name, that's their identity. And this leads to verse 5, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And as the bridegroom rejoices in the bride, so the Lord your God will rejoice over you. A verse I often think on when I perform weddings. And I watch the bride coming down the aisle and see the look of excitement and wonder on the face of the groom. I remember the excitement of my own wedding. I can still see Louise 
walking down the aisle looking gorgeous. And noticing that her hands were shaking. And in that moment, seeing her fear, I hastily shook off all my own nervousness in order to comfort her. And I took her hands in mine and we together embraced that holy moment, savoring it, aware of God and His glory, the full hearts. And so... It leads us to the fourth question. This verse leads us to the fourth question. Why does God use this picture, this image of marriage, to communicate to us? Why this picture? I can't improve on the way one commentator said it. He wrote this, that God uses the image of marriage to communicate there will be a day when the people of God, the people of God will know they will know the unbroken presence and love of God as a wife should know the presence and love of her husband. Close quote. That's why God uses this image. It's so powerful. Of course, this is why when one partner or one spouse betrays and leaves, why it's so devastating as well. Some of you have experienced that. But all of us can have hope. This is the kind of love and the kind of faithfulness that God declares to us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. In just a few words, with power-packed imagery, God has communicated that His love is not sterile. It is not obligatory. It is not performed to check off a box. But it is emotional, expressive, and enthusiastic. Indeed, the verse that Jake and Melissa chose, Zephaniah 3.17, communicates the same thing. I wonder if you have ever pictured God like that, with that kind of love for you. It's not only I love you, but it's also I like you. Let's ask the fifth question. Here's the fifth question. So, we now, we begin to taste that Marriage experience, that intimacy experience today, because the Holy Spirit lives in us. But what do we also do today while we wait, while we wait for the day when we will begin, when we will be in His presence without any interruption? What do we do today? What do we do until justice and righteousness are restored? And here again, now we intersect with our carol. Going back to go tell it. In verse 6, we remember that we need watchmen on the wall who constantly cry out. Verse 6 says, Isaiah said, You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. I want to say that's first of all, if you're a pastor today, if you're in full time Christian ministry, this is first to us. You who help the people of God, remember him. You who are immersed in God's word. You who are charged with leading God's people to remember the Lord, to seek first his kingdom. Don't give any rest until the end. That's the first application is for us that are in Christian ministry. And this is the church's first priority. Now, I don't know if our dear African-American brother or sister who penned Go Tell It on the Mountain, if they held any formal office in Christ's church. 
But whatever their position, they accepted the responsibility of being a watchman on the wall, gazing out over the horizon. And when they saw the messenger coming, bearing good news, running towards the city walls, they saw it as their responsibility, indeed their joy, to share it with others. The good news that Christ was born. Christ was born. And Christ was born to do what? Christ was born to do what? Again, our text answers that question. Look back at the first few verses of Isaiah 61. And here you see the mission statement of this baby. It is to bring good news to the poor. It is to bind up the brokenhearted. It is to proclaim liberty to the captives. It is to open the prison gates. It is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of coming judgment and to comfort those who mourn. In this life, we get to join Jesus and become apprentices and share his work. And in this way, we are all watchmen on the wall. Never rest in sharing the gospel, which brings spiritual liberty first. And never rest on serving the poor and the broken, those who need spiritual, emotional, and physical healing. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Christ has been born to set the captives free. This is why we urge you to include your friends on Christmas Eve and even post a sign in your yard to let others know about our Christmas Eve service. This is why we seek involvement in the lives of refugee families. Families who've been pressed into an unfamiliar world because of war or famine. And we will bring the gifts that Nick talked about earlier. We're going to give gifts to those families. We're going to do that in Christ's name to demonstrate and communicate the freedom that Christ gives. So pick up a tag on the way out. And some of you on the 23rd participate in their distribution. This is why we go to the other side of the world to assist an under-resourced church facing tremendous external pressures. It's why we talk with people who have no idea who Christ is. On my first trip to East Asia, I talked with a young man whose name he, English name he took was Anthony. And after we spoke, this is a, a conference where a Christian, young student, Christian leaders came from all over this country to learn together and to be trained in leadership. And this young man told me with tears in his eyes, saying that three years ago, a team came from the United States, and a team from Alabama. And that team shared Christ with me. It was the first time I heard of Christ, and I became a Christ follower during that time. This is why we urge you to give generously on Christmas Eve, and more importantly, to pray for us. Again, as we go to the world, go to places where Christ is needed. Now, I want to go one other place this morning. Something very relevant. I want to go one other note of importance because this passage reminds us of this before we close up this morning the message. As the church, we are God's exhibit to a watching world. God seeks to reveal His glory through our broken lives. 
And we are in an incredibly surprising moment of history. I did not see it coming, though I think a more astute observer could have predicted it. I'll just ask it by way of a question. Are we seeing in in front of our very eyes the unraveling of the sexual revolution that was ferociously unleashed on this country 60 years ago? We are witnessing in front of our very eyes the justice of God pouring forth on those who objectify others, who abuse their power, who take what is not theirs. Every day there is another shockwave, another new name, another fall from grace. Now, I don't know where it's all leading, and I can't predict it, though I passionately hope some in our culture will reconsider the wisdom of Scripture. And how its call to sexual ethics honors the body and preserves the sacredness of sexuality. Now overlapping this drama is a strange admixture of politics, morality, and religion. And I would urge you, as you discuss today's current events around the proverbial water cooler that you think and talk as a Christ follower first. Not as a Republican, nor a Democrat. Not as a conservative, nor a liberal. Nor one who believes that political power must be attained at all costs. But think and talk as a member of Christ's kingdom. Now, I'm not suggesting it is easy to know what Jesus would say And would do. But I'm urging you to be thoughtful with what comes out of your mouth. Be thoughtful with what you post on social media and stay dependent on and listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is imperative today for the church that we not allow the world of politics, which is a system inherently sustained by compromise. Politics is inherently sustained by compromise. It's imperative that we not allow the world of politics to muddy our ability to be a voice for the sacredness of human life and the sacredness of the body, including a robust condemnation of sexual harassment. Now, in speaking for myself alone, I am ever conscious that I represent Jesus and his church. That is why for me, I do not identify too closely with any one party or any one candidate. Let's go back to verse 6. Let's go back to verse 6. I want to close here and just look at these last two passages. And as you can see, I think there are implications and applications for us, both as we speak and communicate Christ as we serve the poor and as we represent the wisdom and the scriptures of God to an onlooking world that is looking to us for clear answers. Go back to verse 6. Remember that we said here, pastors, spiritual leaders, never rest in helping your spiritual community remember God to lead God-centered lives, to seek first the kingdom of God. And then look finally at verse 7. 
This is amazing. Verse 7 says, And give him no rest. You see, as believers, until the kingdom comes in all of its righteousness, we should be restless. Somebody else is restless too. Somebody else is agonizing over the condition of the world. And it's God himself. And the admonition here is for us to give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise to the earth. Friends, what does this mean? Church, it means we are to be a people of prayer. And to give this restless God no rest, but keep asking until the kingdom of God is fully established. Until justice and righteousness are complete. Until every saved soul is in the kingdom of God. And friends, Christ will complete his kingdom. He will finish the task. He will make his church, he will make his people the praise of the earth. It's going to happen. Will you be part of it when it does? Will you be part of it when it does? That Christ was born was a message worth sharing everywhere. Why? Because Christ was born to save people from their sin. Has he saved you from yours? If not, let this be the Christmas season that you apply his death and his sacrifice for your sins. Apply it to your life by giving him reign and by giving him rule in your heart. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for this day that we can join with others. We can join with our brother and sister 150 plus years ago that wrote this song etched in their own heart, etched from their suffering to become watchmen on the wall and to go tell it on the mountain and to go tell it everywhere. Help us, Father, as apprentices of Jesus to share in this work that our brother or sister has called us to. And Father, as well in Christ's name, for anyone this morning who has never opened their heart and applied the sacrifice that you made, open their eyes, open their lips to believe and to speak and to confess that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is God's Son and Jesus indeed is the Lord. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.